Welcome to the African American Hour. I'm Byron Buckner, bringing you an hour of information, opinion, culture, and history about the African American community. On this program, I have readings from the Washington Post, USA Today, the Associated Press, and I'm going to begin with an article about the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff from the Santa Fe New Mexican. The title is Unflappable Fighter Pilot Assumes Top Military Post, published September 30th, 2023, and was written by Helene Cooper. The subtitle to the story is General Charles Q. Brown Jr. takes over as chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. General Charles Q. Brown Jr. is known for being steady in a storm. There was the time in 1991 when his F-16 was struck by lightning and he had to eject into the alligator-infested Everglades, earning the call sign Swamp Thing. The time in 2020, just days before his Senate confirmation vote to be Air Force Chief, when he spoke quietly but forcefully in a video of the many African Americans who have suffered the same fate as George Floyd. And there was this summer, when his confirmation vote to be President Biden's senior military advisor was held up for months by a lone Republican senator from Alabama. Brown, known as CQ, kept his head down as Democrats and Republicans locked horns. CQ was the guy in the room who would never have the most words to say, but he always had the most to offer, General David Goldfein, a retired former Air Force chief of staff, said in an interview. On Friday, September 29th, Brown, a four-star Air Force fighter pilot with 130 combat flying hours during his 39 years of service, was sworn in as the highest-ranking military officer in the country. His four-year term as chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff began Sunday, October 1st. He will succeed General Mark Milley, whose tenure was shaped by a mercurial president in crisis after crisis. At a ceremony just outside Washington, Biden praised Brown's unflappable demeanor and criticized Senator Tommy Tuberville's hold on military promotions. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin thanked Milley for his years of sacrifice and service, calling him a scholar and a warrior. Thank you for all that you have done and for all that you have given, he said. Austin then praised Brown's leadership, saying that he will defend our democracy without flinching. The new chairman's colleagues at the Pentagon say he is ready for whatever comes his way. In addition to being steady, CQ is tremendously collaborative and a team player, and I believe he will be able to work with and communicate with and lead in any situation in the future, said Admiral Craig Fowler, who has retired and served with Brown when they were both at Central Command. That was the article titled, Unflappable Fighter Pilot Assumes Top Military Post. It appeared in the Santa Fe New Mexican on September 30th, 2023. My next reading is about the United States Ambassador to the United Nations. The title is America's Global Voice, written by Francesca Chambers. It appeared in USA Today's Monday, October 16, 2023 edition. The assailant's gun was in her face, his finger on the trigger. Linda Thomas-Greenfield believed she was about to die. She was staying as a guest of a fellow U.S. official in a house next door to the Rwandan prime minister. It was April 1994, and a militia uprising was about to trigger a genocide that would leave nearly one million people dead. A black woman, Thomas Greenfield couldn't possibly be an American diplomat, her captors decided. 
She was the person they were looking for, the prime minister, and they were going to execute her. In these guys' minds, they were coming to the residence of an American, Thomas Greenfield told USA Today. They expected to find white people, and they found me. She looked at the glazed-eyed young man and confronted the wrath of hatred with grace. She asked him his name, then told him hers. I don't know why I survived to tell the story, Thomas Greenfield said. Thomas Greenfield would not speak about the incident for many years. When she finally did, she recounted how she disarmed the man not with threats of American power, but a smile. I brought out my improved diplomatic smile that my mother had taught me, and I would survive, Thomas Greenfield said in a TEDx speech in 2018. She has spent a lifetime confronting the life-or-death nature of international diplomacy. And while most cases aren't resolved at gunpoint, the night in Rwanda was not the first time or the last she would be dismissed because of her race. She had grown up in the segregated South. At Louisiana State University in the 1970s, she was in one of the first classes forced to include black students by court order. She began her diplomatic career in 1982. But that night in Rwanda pushed her to something more. She wanted more diplomats in the Foreign Service, people of color, women, black women like her, to change the face of America the rest of the world sees. Thomas Greenfield did it with her own brand of gumbo diplomacy. It's a term based on her actual gumbo recipe and style of inviting people to find common ground over a home-cooked meal, but one that also takes on a larger meaning. Negotiation and power can be crafted in many ways by people from many walks of life. On every level, I think that when we look at Ambassador Thomas Greenfield, she's an extraordinary public servant. She's an extraordinary leader, Vice President Kamala Harris said in an interview with USA Today. She's always got a perspective on history, but her vision is always about the future. At age 70, Thomas Greenfield remains among just a handful of black women to reach the highest levels of American diplomacy. While her work is far from over, the larger diplomatic world now looks more like her than it did in 1994. The Foreign Service had six black ambassadors in 1986. Today, more than 25% of the State Department's civil servants are black. When she was asked to lead President Joe Biden's transition for its new State Department, she thought perhaps an ambassadorship would be on the table. But even she was surprised when Biden offered her the U.N. ambassador's post, the most important one of all. Thomas Greenfield didn't learn diplomacy in Geneva or Washington, but by holding her mother's hand on the walk to school in the small town of Baker, Louisiana. Her mother, who had only an eighth grade education, reminded her she could conquer the world in spite of adversity, even if that meant she could only attend only all-black schools or that the Ku Klux Klan regularly burned crosses in neighbors' front yards. Thomas Greenfield understood she had to set her sights high. That meant choosing to go to LSU, a university being forced to integrate instead of the historically black college near her childhood home. David Duke, a white supremacist and Klan leader, had a significant presence on campus. A world-renowned historian regularly used a racial slur in her class. One professor gave her an F. When Thomas Greenfield asked him why, he told her, If you don't know the answer to that question, you don't need to be here. 
She joined the Foreign Service in the early 1980s at a time when diplomacy was almost exclusively reserved for white and Ivy League educated men. There she would meet a transformative figure in her career, Edward Perkins, the first black man to be U.S. ambassador to South Africa. Thomas Greenfield started working for Perkins, a fellow Louisianan, as a staff assistant in the office of the Director General of the Foreign Service. Perkins would use his time in that position to develop a pipeline for low-income students, women, and minority groups that have been historically underrepresented to become diplomats. The graduate program, known as the Pickering Fellowship, still exists today. He had been the ambassador to Liberia and would go on to serve as U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, all jobs she would eventually have. He really pushed me to stretch beyond my own imagination of what I could achieve, Thomas Greenfield said. A few years after her arrival in 1982, the State Department would face a class action lawsuit from black foreign service officers. It was a daunting experience that opened her eyes to the adversity she would encounter later in her career as she sought to diversify the diplomatic ranks. In time, Thomas Greenfield would craft her own style of diplomacy. Her theory has always been that if you're sitting over a good meal, then you can have a productive discussion and remain friends, even when there are disagreements. She is in some ways a throwback, said Mark Green, a former Trump administration official who worked with Thomas Greenfield when he was U.S. ambassador to Tanzania. That was, in a bygone era, the juice of diplomacy. She has brought her gumbo diplomacy to postings all around the world. She even cooked for former Liberian President Ellen Johnson Sirleaf. Her cooking isn't solely reserved for dignitaries. Thomas Greenfield's kitchen table is also a place to foster the next generation of women and minorities. I think her love language is cooking, and it's something that she cares very deeply about, said Kelly Razouk, capital R-A-Z-Z-O-U-K, who was Thomas Greenfield's chief of staff at the U.N. until August and now works at the National Security Council at the White House. One of Razouk's fondest U.N. memories includes a breakfast where she brought her nine-year-old daughter to Thomas Greenfield's residence. A mother of two herself, Thomas Greenfield helped the young women on her staff juggle the demands of being a parent with their jobs. One of the most inspiring things she told me was to say, you're doing a great job, Kelly. You're a great mom. And that was really, really touching for me, Razouk said. Thomas Greenfield has fought to change the perception of American diplomats as being pale, Yale, and male by traveling to historically black colleges and universities to speak with students about opportunities in the State Department even when her schedule was overloaded. We would sit there with her schedule and say, you're running from sunup to sundown. I'm not sure we can do this. And her constant phrase to all of us was, I'll find 10 minutes, Razouk said. Those 10 minutes often turned to half an hour, but she always was prioritizing finding that time, Razouk said. Thomas Greenfield has spent the past decade trying to realize an idea she put before senators when former President Barack Obama tapped her to oversee personnel, a foreign service that reflects the diversity of America, which she says is crucial to the State Department's work. That legacy was in peril for a short period under the Trump administration, where ambassadorships held by black diplomats dropped to a dramatic number, five.
When she stepped into her confirmation hearing for the U.N. wearing a purple tweed jacket, she addressed the committee saying her 35-year career represents the progress and promise of America. Biden made the job a cabinet position empowering Thomas Greenfield. She is one of four black women in his cabinet, but she is only the second black woman to ever have her job. Reflecting on the appointment, Harris said Biden chose Thomas Greenfield because he has the utmost respect and confidence in her ability to bring people together at a time for great challenges for the country and for the world. Make no mistake, she is there for a reason at this moment in time, Harris said. The moment to confront Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov, capital L-A-V-R-O-V, had arrived. This could not be another routine conversation with the U.N. Security Council, she promised. Too much was at stake. She could not ignore the elephant in the room. Russia had convened a meeting on multilateral cooperation. Thomas Greenfield unmuted her microphone. The brim of her blue eyeglasses sat on her nose with a grandmother-like demeanor. Undeterred, she began to speak. This is a serious topic, even if it was convened by a council member whose actions represent a blatant disregard to the U.N. Charter, Thomas Greenfield said, alluding to Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the illegal detention of American citizens. She then whipped out a copy and turned to Chapter 1 and began to read. To boot, Thomas Greenfield had orchestrated her speech alongside a special guest, the sister of Paul Whelan the former U.S. Marine declared wrongfully detained in Russia. Inside the chamber, Elizabeth Whelan stared down Lavrov. It was a very powerful moment, Thomas Greenfield said. This is one of the creative ways to use her seat in the U.N. Security Council to advance American diplomacy, with officials from Russia and China using their permanent seats in the body to block her efforts. She did it again in September, bringing in the family of detained Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich. I can't change the fact that Russia and China sit on the Security Council, but I can, as a member of the Security Council sitting at that table, hold them accountable, expose their actions, Thomas Greenfield told USA Today. Thomas Greenfield's reach has extended far beyond the walls of the United Nations. She has had a significant role in the Biden administration's efforts to form closer relationships with developing nations in African countries with fragile democracies that China has invested heavily in. Thomas Greenfield was one of the first people the vice president called ahead of her trip in March to Ghana, Tanzania, and Zambia. I knew that I could call on her and get a very candid and clear perspective on how we should approach the continuing relationship that we have with African nations, Harris said. Watching Thomas Greenfield take on the inherent hurdles of diplomacy with acuity and poise immediately struck one of her many mentees, Desiree Cormier-Smith. Cormier, capital C-O-R-M-I-E-R, who first met Thomas Greenfield as a fellow in the Pickering Foreign Affairs Program, went on to work with the ambassador in the Bureau of African Affairs. Once, when they were in New York together for the U.N. General Assembly, Cormier saw heads of state run over and hug Thomas Greenfield. After they'd walk away, I would ask, who was that? She'd say, oh, that was the president of such and such. I'm surprised that he still likes me because the last time I had to talk to him was a very difficult conversation, said Cormier, who is now the special representative for racial equity and justice at the State Department. That was gumbo diplomacy at work. She's able to deliver those tough messages with empathy and with humanity. 
People respect her and they like her, and I think that's what makes her so effective, Comir said. As for how long she'll be at the UN, Thomas Greenfield laughed. She too serves at the pleasure of the president. But on that pivotal day in 2020 when Biden announced his national security team, she knew Perkins would have been proud. That was an article about the United States ambassador to the United Nations titled "America's Global Voice," written by Francesca Chambers. It appeared in USA Today on October 16th, 2023. My next reading is from the Associated Press. The title is "National Cathedral Replaces Windows Honoring Confederacy with Stained Glass Homage to Racial Justice." It was written by Peter Smith and published September twenty-third, twenty twenty-three. The landmark Washington National Cathedral unveiled new stained glass windows Saturday, September twenty-third, with the theme of racial justice. Filling the space that had once held four windows honoring Confederate generals Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson, the new windows depict a march for justice by African Americans, descendants of the very people who would have remained in slavery after the Civil War if the side for which the officers fought had prevailed. The cathedral had removed the old windows after Confederate symbols featured prominently in recent racist violence. The dedication service was attended by many clergy from the Washington area's historically black churches, as well as leaders of social justice organizations. The prayers, Bible readings, and brief speeches were interspersed with gospel music and spirituals, as well as the contemporary song "Heal Our Land." Justice Katanji Brown Jackson, the first black woman to serve on the Supreme Court. Read excerpts from the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from the Birmingham jail from 1963. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. She read from King's famed message while jailed in Alabama. The goal of America is freedom. We will win our freedom. A week earlier, she had spoken at the 60th anniversary of the Birmingham church bombing that killed four young black girls. The new windows, titled "Now and Forever," are based on a design by artist Carrie James Marshall. Stained glass artisan Andrew Goldkuhl crafted the windows based on that design. In the new work, African Americans are shown marching on foot or in a wheelchair from left to right across the four windows. Some march in profile. Some directly face the viewer with signs proclaiming fairness and no foul play. Light floods in through the sky-bright panes of white and blue above the figures. Marshall, who was born in Birmingham in 1955, invited anyone viewing the new windows or other artworks inspired by social justice to imagine oneself as a subject and an author of a never-ending story that is still yet to be told. The setting is particularly significant in the massive neo-Gothic cathedral. Which regularly hosts ceremonies tied to major national events. It is filled with iconography depicting the American story in glass, stone, and other media. Images range from presidents to famous cultural figures and state symbols. But the Lee and Jackson windows were telling a story that was not a true story, according to the very Reverend Randolph Marshall Hollerith, Dean of the Cathedral. They were installed in 1953 and donated by the United Daughters of the Confederacy. 
The windows extolled generals fighting for a cause that sought to enshrine slavery in our country for all time, Hollerith said. He added, You can't call yourself the National Cathedral, a house of prayer for all people, when there are windows in there that are deeply offensive to a large portion of Americans. That was the Associated Press article titled, National Cathedral Replaces Windows Honoring Confederacy with Stained Glass Homage to Racial Justice. Next on the African American Hour are two readings about author James McBride. The first is, James McBride wins $50,000 Kirkus Prize for Fiction for the Heaven and Earth Grocery Store. This is an Associated Press story that was published October 11, 2023. Three books that explore and celebrate the diversity of American culture were awarded Kirkus Prizes, with each winner winning $50,000. James McBride's The Heaven and Earth Grocery Store, a novel set in an eclectic Pennsylvania town in the 1930s, won the fiction category. Hector Tobar's Our Migrant Souls, A Meditation on Race and the Meanings and Myths of Latino, received the nonfiction award, and Ariel Aberg Riger's American Redo, Visual Stories from Our Dynamic History, one for young readers' literature. The awards were presented by the trade publication Kirkus Reviews. History and community emerged as central themes in the most outstanding works of literature published this year. We see these ideas come to life in widely different ways in all three of this year's winners, each one compelling from beginning to end, begging to be celebrated, discussed, and shared, Meg Kine, publisher of Kirkus Reviews, said in a statement. My next reading is a review of the book that was mentioned in the previous reading, James McBride's The Heaven and Earth Grocery Store. It was reviewed by Ron Charles and published August 3rd, 2023 in the Washington Post newspaper. At the opening of the Heaven and Earth Grocery Store, Pennsylvania State Troopers find a skeleton at the bottom of an old well. Such putrid circumstances promise a grim tale. But this is a book by James McBride. If anyone can make those moldy bones dance, it's him. Ever since his memoir, The Color of Water, 1995, became a fixture of American literature, there's been an element of exuberance boarding on the miraculous in McBride's work. Vitality thrums through his stories even in the shadows of despair. The Good Lord Bird, his irrepressible novel about abolitionist John Brown, rightly won a National Book Award in 2013. And Deacon King Kong, about a sprawling cast in and around a Brooklyn housing project, was one of the great joys of 2020. The Heaven and Earth Grocery Store confirms the abiding strength of McBride's vernacular narrative. With his eccentric, larger-than-life characters and outrageous scenes of spliced tragedy and comedy, Dickensian is not too grand a description for his novels, but the term is ultimately too condescending and too Anglican. The melodrama that McBride spins is wholly his own, steeped in our country's complex racial tensions and alliances. Surely the time is not too far distant when we'll refer to other writers hypnotically entertaining stories as James McBrideian. His new novel takes place before and during the Depression in a ramshackle Pennsylvania neighborhood called Chicken Hill, where Jewish immigrants and African Americans cling to the deferred dream of equality in the United States. Moshe Ludlow, capital M-O-S-H-E, is a wannabe impresario from Romania married to Chona, a polio survivor with a pronounced limp. 
He has a radical idea. The Goim won't like it, G-O-Y-I-M. But what if he opened his all-American dance hall and theater to black patrons? By silent decree, African Americans were forbidden in downtown businesses except as janitors and maids. But as soon as the band starts up, Moshe's somber new guest frolicked and laughed, dancing as if they were birds enjoying flight for the first time. Unsurprisingly, that success inspires considerable opposition from the area's racists and anti-Semites. But Moshe persists, and his entertainment empire expands fast. So fast, in fact, that he can afford to think about moving out of their little apartment above the old heaven and earth grocery store. But Chona won't abandon the neighborhood. What's more shocking to the town gossips, she insists on running the grocery store herself. Her goodness endears her to Moshe and exasperates him. This area is poor, which we are not, Moshe says. It is Negro, which we are not. We are doing well. Because we serve, you see, Chona insists. That is what we do. The Talmud says it. We must serve. Moshe acquiesces, as he knew he always would, and they stay in Chicken Hill. There is no negotiating with his wife's charity of mind. McBride, whose mother was a Jewish immigrant from Poland, is wholly committed to this theme, which feels simultaneously inspirational and, alas, nostalgic. The folks of Chicken Hill regard Chona's friendship with black residents as proof of the American possibility of equality. We all can get along no matter what. But that goal is brutally tested in the heaven and earth grocery store. If there's a ramshackle quality to McBride's plotting, it's the artful precariousness of a genius. His expansive collection of ominous, preposterous, and saintly characters twirls like loose sticks in a river, guided by a physics of chaos beyond all calculation except all. There are hilarious set pieces reminiscent of the mechanicals in A Midsummer Night's Dream, thrilling episodes that recall Eliza's escape in Uncle Tom's cabin, and dreadful moments that rival Colson Whitehead's The Nickel Boys. From celebration to calamity, from farce to affliction, the novel is swept along by the raw eloquence of McBride's voice. The moral engine driving all this activity is Chona, the daughter of a rabbi who taught her to be generous in principle. She regularly irritates the town's white power brokers by promoting Jewish causes, denouncing the local KKK, and reading her socialism books in crazy women nonsense. Indeed, her devotion to the neighborhood's black residents precipitates a crisis designed by McBride for maximum emotional impact. At the center of the novel is a sweet 12-year-old orphan named Dodo who lost his hearing and his mother after a kitchen stove exploded. If that plaintive figure sounds downright Victorian, just wait. With a gross disregard for Dodo's intellectual abilities, state officials are determined to send the boy to a special school, which the folks of Chicken Hill know isn't a school at all, but rather a harrowing institution ruled by a violent fiend called the Son of Man. It's no surprising who's willing to help hide the black boy from that horror. For childless Chona, Dodo is not a legal risk, but an answer to a prayer. He'd come as a matter of conscience, McBride writes, but she regards him as a matter of love. In just a few months, he had become a living embodiment of Lishim, a toast to life. L apostrophe C-H-A-I-M. Let the state inspector come snooping around her store for Dodo. Chona had no fear of the government, McBride writes. 
But there are plenty of reasons to be afraid, and the novel's descriptions of the Pennhurst State Hospital for the insane and feeble-minded will make any reader blanch. I wish I could say McBride was exaggerating, but I don't think so. When my wife and I were looking for special schools and daycare for our elder daughter, who has cerebral palsy, we saw facilities that could have been designed by Heronius Bosch. Back in the 1930s, especially in poor and poorly regulated towns, such institutions were surely even worse. In his acknowledgments, McBride notes that this novel was inspired by a very different place, an enlightened camp for disabled children where he worked when he was in college. He writes, Lessons of inclusivity, love, and acceptance, delivered not by condescending kindness, but with deeds that show the recipients the path to true equality, remain with me for the rest of my life. Indeed, it's that clear-eyed vision of physical disability subsumed by transcendent bliss that raises the heaven-and-earth grocery store above the sentimentality that too often clings to stories involving the differently abled. McBride challenges us to picture what he calls the dazzling carnival of life. The hooting, the clapping, the yelling, the cheering, the howling, the crutches being waved in the air, the gorgeous cacophony of humanity in wheelchairs, some wearing special eyeglasses, other in hearing aids, signing and gesturing, the winks and chortles and grunts of pleasure, the grimaces and shaking of heads and excited howling of those without normal ability. It's impossible to describe. No, it's not, as McBride proves here. We all need, we all deserve, this vibrant, love-affirming novel that bounds over any difference that claims to separate us. That was a review of James McBride's book, The Heaven and Earth Grocery Store. The title of the article is, James McBride's new novel entertains while getting deep about equality. It was written by Ron Charles and appeared in the Washington Post on October 3, 2023. My next reading is a short story that was written by James McBride. It was taken from James McBride's book of short stories called Five Carat Soul. It's set during the Civil War. The title is Father Abe. Here they come. Eighteen little colored children, tiny tufts of life, peeked their faces out the doorway of a ruined arms factory and made their way into the sunshine of a glorious Richmond, Virginia afternoon. As they emerged in line, holding hands, 43 Negro soldiers, members of the 32nd Pennsylvania Colored Infantry Regiment, dressed in tattered Union blue, stopped and leaned on their shovels to watch. They'd spent this morning as they did yesterday morning, and the one before that, and the one before that digging a trench around the ruins of the Tredegar gun and ammunition factory, which they had helped destroy the month before, along with most of Richmond, the capital of the Confederacy. Several weeks had passed since they'd taken this town. The war was nearly over, but not quite. No one was quite sure. Nobody told them anything. There were still things to do, but where to do them and how to do them and when to do them, they had no idea. Their orders were to dig, and when they stopped, to dig and dig again. And dig they did. For nine days the soldiers dug, with only one distraction. Each day around noon, the men, thirsty and hot, exhausted from digging, would stop to lean on their shovels and admire the day's one form of entertainment, a daily ritual. Each day 
18 orphan Negro children aged 5 to 13 years emerged in the gorgeous Virginia afternoon sun from the ruins of the factory and paraded past, marching out in double file to follow their caretaker, Sister Coles, on a daily trek to the Freedmen's Bureau about four miles up the road for a meal of hard tack and biscuits. The soldiers enjoyed watching the kids. Each day they gathered in small groups to swab their faces with handkerchiefs and guess the origins of each Negro child as the orphans marched by. That big one there, he's a Georgia Negro, a brigade cannoneer remarked. See that wide head? That's how they look. Nah, another soldier offered. That's a Sea Island boy. See them wide feet? Them's fishermen's feet. I'd reckon South Carolina low country. He ain't low country, the cannoneer snorted. He's from Maryland. That boy's daddy is a waterman. That's where his feet come from. Waterman got the biggest feet. A portly rifleman stepped between the two and said gaily, I wouldn't bet a smooth dollar on none of y'all guesses, he said. But that one there, he pointed, I know who his daddy is. He called out, Hey, Abe Lincoln. Hey, boy. At the end of the line, the last child, a tiny mixed-race boy, looked up. Abraham Henry Lincoln, aged five, his soft skin the color of creamed coffee. The sun bouncing off his curly hair and light eyes gaped in awe at the muscled, tall, smiling men leaning on their shovels. He waved and smiled shyly, showing several missing front teeth, prompting a burst of laughter and woofing. Boy, when you gonna grow some teeth? Son, them guns is ripe enough for butter beans. Keep your mouth closed, boy, let some flies get in there. Hey, Abe, the cannoneer called out. Want an apple? Little Abe Lincoln stopped short dropping the hand of the kid in front of him, lingering as the rest of the kids marched ahead in twos. He stood shyly for a moment, then slowly crossed the road as the line of kids drew away. Where are you from, boy? the cannoneer asked. We got a bet going. Where's my apple? he asked. Uh, let me see now, the cannoneer said, searching his pockets. I just had it. Little Abe Lincoln watched anxiously as the cannoneer, bereft of apples and any other food, searched his pockets. Oh, leave him alone, Pete, the sergeant said. His name was Big Nate, a tall, serious man from Alabama. He patted little Abe Lincoln on the head. Go on, boy, catch up with the rest before Sister Coles comes back and puts a cat's tail on you. I might fetch you a real apple tomorrow. Where are you going to get it from, the cannoneer sneered. Nate ignored him and nodded to Abe. Go on, boy. Little Abe turned to hustle to catch up with the line of children, which had nearly reached the corner of the battle-torn street of ravaged homes and storefronts. The child had nearly caught up with the others when suddenly the cannoneer shouted out, By the way, your daddy's coming tomorrow. Abe stopped short as the line of children moved away, turned the corner and disappeared out of sight. He trotted back. You know my daddy, little Abe said. He stared up at the cannoneer, a portly soldier named Vernon, who seemed tall as a tree and as wide as a house. "'Course I do. It's Father Abe himself,' he said, with a wink at the others. Little Abe Lincoln stood alone now. The line of kids had vanished. "'How you know my pa?' he asked. "'He's got the same name, don't he?' the cannoneer said. "'He's Abe Lincoln. You Abe Lincoln. Put two and two together, boy.' He's a big man, you know, your pa. You know him? Why, everybody knows Abe Lincoln's son. 
He's the biggest white man in the world. He lives in the biggest white house you ever seen. Got land yonder as far as your eyes can see. Got more money than the king of France. And he's coming tomorrow, right here to Richmond. He is? Surely. Heard that from a mule skinner. That's enough, Vernon, the sergeant Big Nate said. The cannoneer glanced at his fellow soldiers, whose smiles had disappeared. I'm just funning them, Nate, he said. Nate turned toward little Abe and knelt down. Abe saw the big man's gentle eyes focus on him. Now, son. And suddenly, little Abe felt himself being snatched into the air and the world was upside down. He found himself seeing the sergeant sideways. Sister Coles had grasped him and snatched him in the air. Her strong arms held him on her hip like a sack of meal. She glared at Big Nate. How do you like that soup I made for y'all last week, Mr. Nate, she asked. I like to find Sister Coles, Big Nate said. Good, cause I peed in it. The soldiers laughed as Sister Coles turned away, holding Abe Lincoln under her hip like a pig suckling and moving down the road fast, as if her speed would ease the great pain that she knew had ached little Abe all five years of his life from the moment he could recognize himself. That he was named after a man he never saw, a father that never was nor ever would be, and that at age five, he still had no idea who Abraham Lincoln was. That night, a lone owl stood guard atop the peak of the shelled-out roof of the destroyed north wing of the abandoned Tregador gun factory. Beneath a twilight sky and shattered rooftop, Sister Cole's orphans lay on makeshift straw mattresses serving as beds, underneath tables that once held lathes, tools, and machine presses, and now served as roofs during the rain, inside a factory workshop that at once powered a mighty nation to war against itself. Their hissing, chattering voices lifted into the night air, through the gaping roof and up into the night as they discussed matters of life, their whispers carried aloft by the wind into the sky, where every dream seemed possible and the echoes of past pain and lost parents vanished into the promise of tomorrow's coming. When my daddy comes to get me, said one eight-year-old, he's going to make me a feather bed. My mama promised me she's going to bring me a pocket full of sugar candy when she comes back, bragged a seven-year-old girl. Oh, hush, snorted Solomon, the oldest among them, a wise old man of 13. Ain't nobody coming back for y'all. When Mama Coles gets tired of you, you're going to have to shift for yourself. Y'all ain't going to get no mass or pass. You got no place to go. Get that through your heads. There was raw silence. Then a rustling. From the end of the room, a tiny voice piped up. I got a paw, little Abe Lincoln said proudly. No, you don't, Solomon said. Yes, I do. I got a paw, and he's a great big white man. He lives in a great big white house. He's got more land over yonder than you'll ever see. Solomon cackled. Abe Lincoln at your paw, stupid. You ain't even got a name. Abe's the name somebody throwed at you when they found you on the road someplace. Your real name's No Paul. A burst of laughter covered the room, echoing off the walls and into the sky above. Little Abe Lincoln felt his face flushing hot. That's a lie, Solomon. I got a paw and he's coming to get me tomorrow. Who said? Soldier said it. More howling and guffaws. Abe Lincoln at your paw cheese face, Solomon said through his laughter. Yes, he is. No, he ain't. Yes, he is. 
and when he comes tomorrow, he's going to bust your face in. A sudden opening of the door silenced the room. The kids flopped on their backs onto their straw beds. Sister Cole, holding a lantern, walked into the silence, her bare feet slapping against the wooden floor. She swept a lantern light up and down the aisle of mattresses and makeshift beds. Next one I hear talking in here will get it from my switch something scandalous, she said. She stood in the middle of the floor, staring around as a cone of silence enveloped the room. She then counted 18 heads as she did every night. All 18 in place. Then she turned on her heel and left, closing the door behind her. The next morning at dawn, when she came to wake the children to milk the single cow in the yard, she counted 17 heads. There was one missing. Little Abe Lincoln was gone. Two cannon battery snouts peered into the sky like devil's eyes. Behind the pitched tents and dead fires, the 9th Louisiana Colored Infantry Regiment slept. Somewhere in the camp's darkness, a harmonica sounded wearily. It was 4 a.m. at the corner of Walker and Grill Streets, and it might as well have been 4 a.m. all over the world, for the men of the 9th Louisiana Colored Infantry slept the sleep of dead men. They had arrived three hours previous, fresh from a terrible skirmish in nearby Petersburg led by a bungling Union commander whose idiocy and cowardice had sawed off whatever edge of strength and goodwill they had left. The fight against the desperate 14th Virginia Grays, white farmers and mule skinners like themselves, men of grit and guts who were similarly exhausted, was a disorderly, wild, scandalous, useless mess, which deteriorated from cannons to rifles, to bayonets, to stones, to fists. The whole bit of it just at war's end, too. They were exhausted. They wanted no more of it. In the eerie darkness, a lone sentry named Settles, smoking a pipe near the edge of camp, noticed a possum slip into a ditch covered by old planking near the road, which some soldier had obviously used as a shelter to cover himself as he slept. He trained his rifle at the ditch thinking he had scored his own private dinner. Then, out of both greed and deference to his exhausted sleeping colleagues, he yanked out his bayonet, placed it on the tip of his rifle, and rose to score his meal in silence. He crossed the road, picking up a large stone, gently setting it on one end of the ditch to plug it, then crept stealthily back to the other end. He stood over the ditch on the planking and raised the bayonet in the air, readying to stab the creature as it scampered out the only exit. Then he stomped down heavily onto the plank with his boot. He heard the creature wiggling down the ditch, but it fooled him, for it was bigger than he thought and wiggled so hard it rumbled the plank a bit. Settles, startled, stepped off the plank as the rodent scampered out the end of the ditch and rose on two feet like a man, facing him like a ghost, causing him to backpedal, trip on a stone, lose his balance and fall on his rear end with a shout, dropping his loaded musket on the ground, which discharged on its own with a resounding bang, blasting a precious musket ball into the woods behind him. The camp leapt to life. Fires were doused. Grunts were heard. The clattering of pots and pans. Men rushed from every direction, half-dressed, rifles in hand, some dressed in rebel gear they'd recently procured. They found the sentry settled standing over little Abe, the kid crouched in a ball, his hands held over his head, his tiny face scrunched in agony with the sentry standing over him. A color sergeant stepped forward. What's going on, Settles? 
settles, rattled, blew a whoosh of air out of puffed up cheeks. I damn near killed him, sergeant. He come out of this here ditch, damn fool. The sergeant, a huge, friendly-faced negro, rubbed the sleep out of his eyes, stooped down and scooped up the child with big muscled arms, picking up little Abe like he was an infant. He sat on the large pipe with the kid in his lap as the other soldiers crowded in. What you doing here, boy? I'm looking for my paw, he said. Who's your paw? He's got a name? Abe Lincoln. The man burst out laughing. Several clapped little Abe on the back. Father Abe? That's a good choice, boy. I'd give five whole dollars to see Father Abe, child. Best man in the world, your paw. God bless him. The sergeant frowned. He took a lantern from a fellow soldier and held it to the boy's face. Now they could see him clearly. The white features, the curly hair, the brown skin. Gosh, one soldier said, he's a regular buckaroo. More laughter. The sergeant grew serious. Be quiet, he said. He sighed and looked around. Anybody know this child? He might be from that gun factory over yonder on Taylor Road, said one soldier. Heard a colored woman started an orphanage over there. The Pennsylvania 32nd's digging ditches around it. Well, we gonna stay clear of that, the sergeant said. We ain't digging no ditches. He nodded at the sentry. Settles, get a mule and a wagon and take this boy back to the gun factory. No! Little Abe grasped the sergeant's chest and arms. I want my paw. Son, he ain't here. Where is he? I don't know. He's coming tomorrow. Well, you'll see him tomorrow then. Ain't no Abe's here? The boy asked. We got three or four Abe's here, the sergeant said. In fact, that's my name, Abe. But I'm Abe Porter, not Abe Lincoln. You my paw? Course not, the sergeant said hotly. This prompted a round of laughter and wry comments from the men standing behind the sergeant. I note you was a hot one, Sarge. Hey, Sarge, you got a ready-made family. Sarge got a busy noodle, don't he? And I thought he was a preacher. Hush that, the sergeant barked. He looked around, serious. Hush up. Nothing funny in it. Nothing funny at all. Boys got nobody in the world. The men fell silent. Who give you that name, boy, he asked. I don't know, little Abe said. More soft chuckles, interrupted by an abrupt rustling sound heard in the bushes. A lantern was seen moving toward them in the trees. The lantern emerged from the foliage, illuminating a white face. The men straightened, turned, and saluted as a white captain stepped toward them. The sergeant stood up, holding the child. What's wrong, sergeant? the captain asked. Nothing, sir the sergeant said. Settles found this child here wandering round. The captain shone his light on the boy's face. More men had gathered by now, and for the first time they all could see little Abe Henry Lincoln clearly. Their eyes widened in surprise at the coffee-colored face and the curly hair. Get him back where he belongs, the captain said. We just got word that the president is coming here. In four hours. President Abraham Lincoln himself. He was clearly excited, breathing deeply, but trying to maintain the dignity of his rank. The men gaped at each other in silent surprise as the captain peered at them, then down at the brown bundle in the sergeant's arms. He turned to Settles. Settles, roust up the camp right now so we can clean this place up and move at dawn. 
To the sergeant, he said. Sergeant Porter, take a detail over to Walker and Greel. Straighten up your cannons and mule skinners. Get them cleaned up. Hurry. What about the child, the sergeant said, holding little Abe. Settles can take the contraband back when he's done rousing the camp, the captain said. The word contraband hung in the air a moment, like a barber's razor blade that slowly turns in the air, drifting toward a trusting customer's neck. The captain appeared not to notice. Get moving, he said. We got three hours till daylight. He disappeared into the brush in the darkness of the camp again. The men stood around the sergeant, who still held the boy. Settle stepped forward and the sergeant spoke to little Abe as he handed him over. Well, child, the captain says you got to go now. I don't want to. Well, you got to. No. Don't cling to me, little fella. I ain't the Abe you want. I got no family and don't want none. Not in slavery time. No, sir. Go on with Settles here. Settles, take this boy off me. Come on, child. Easy now. Stop all that fussing. Settles, help me get out of here, will you? Listen, boy. Settles here will take good care of you. Let go, would you please? Quit that crying now, child. After a few minutes, the child quieted down. But he would not be wrested from Sergeant Porter. Porter glumly sent Settles to fetch a mule and wagon for the trip back to the orphanage while he sat on the edge of the ditch with little Abe in his lap. A few of the men drifted off, but several remained, nearly in a semicircle around the boy held by the man seated in the ditch. I want to go with you, little Abe said. You can't go where I'm going. Why not? Well, where I'm going, they ain't got no children. Where is that? Lafayette Parish, Louisiana. I'll be the first child there. You'll live a life of sorrow and pity in my home country, son. Then why are you taking me there? I ain't said I was taking you no place. How come you live there if you ain't got no children? And if you bring some, why can they tell you, big as you is, not to? Ain't you Abe Lincoln? I'm Abe Porter. Don't you live in a big white house? Ain't you got more land over yonder than I've ever seen? I ain't got narrow house nor land. What you got? Freedom, son. What's that? The sergeant looked around. A couple of men cursed and drifted back toward camp across the road. But several remained, watching silently, their tired faces grim. If you have to ask, Porter said sheepishly, I don't know. Does it mean, little A piped up, that nobody can tell you what to do? Well maybe. And you can come and go as you please? I suppose so, the sergeant said miserably. That's what I'd like for myself, little Abe announced, satisfied, to come and go where I please, and nobody tell me what to do. Let's go to Louisiana. I just can't up and go, boy. Why not? I got to pay my dues first. Freedom ain't free, son. You got to fight for it. When do the fight end? It's just about ending now, I reckon. So freedom's here? Well, not quite yet. When it comes, how you'll know it? Sergeant Porter seemed confused. Know what? When freedom comes, how you'll know? How? Porter stammered. He looked around at the men. Several more drifted away, and now only a few were standing around. The clop of a mule's footsteps could be heard. 
Then a mule in a wagon, silhouetted against the campfires of the bivouac camp, appeared on the nearby road. Settles dismounted from the wagon and walked over to the ditch. One mule and wagon ready, sergeant, he said. Porter looked up and down the road, then glanced in the direction of the thickets toward the camp where the captain had disappeared to. The faintest glimmer of sunlight could be seen now. There were only six men squatting around Porter now, including Settles, all silhouettes in the dawn. Porter stared down into the ditch. He seemed lost in thought. Finally, he spoke, staring down at the ditch. I done preached to y'all the best I know how these past years, and we still among the living, ain't we? Thanks to God's grace. He sighed softly, then added, but not all of us. He looked up, shifting the child in his lap. His gaze moved to the camp behind them, his eyes shining, his features slowly becoming visible in the growing light. Something's been digging at me ever since they told us this war was winding down, he said. I come to thinking about Yancey Miles and Irving Gooden and Linwood Sims, God rest their souls. I come to wonder about their deliverance and about what God wants. Not for them, for us, who has fought under other men's rulings and has not yet gone from labor to reward. Who among us is going to remember them? Yancey, with his cousin self and Linwood, who could sing so good, and Irving and his brother Zeke, and all the rest of the colored who's deadened in these woods. The white folks know theirs, won't they? They'll write songs for them and raise flags for them and put them up in books the way they know how. But ain't nobody but God gonna give more than a handful of feed to the ones of us who died out here fighting for our freedom. And what is that anyway? This child here knows more about it than I do. He stood up, holding the boy. Let's God's truth roll according to circumstance. If I'm going to swing, it won't be for nothing. I won't hold it against none of y'all should you turn me in to the captain. I reckon you'd be doing me a favor, for I'd rather hang from the gallows than torture myself for the rest of my life by selling lies and confusion to children, like I just done to this here child. Fool I am. He said to Settles, hold him a minute. To little Abe, he said, you wait here with Settles. I'll be back shortly. He handed the boy to Settles, turned, and marched toward the camp across the road. Settles, little Abe, and the other four men watched Sergeant Porter cross the road and disappear into the camp, now illuminated by campfires. He's taking me back to Louisiana, little Abe asked. Settles found himself holding the boy so tight to his chest that the little fellow was laboring to draw air. If he do, he's walking there on his elbows. What's that mean? With one hand, Settles shifted the boy and pressed little Abe's head to his shoulder so that the boy's face stuck out over his back and his mouth was close to the boy's ear. Don't say one more blessed word, child. Nothing. If you do, I'll put you over my knee and warm them two little biscuits on your backside myself. What I done wrong? What I say? Be quiet. Whatever you say to him, don't say it to me, for God's sake, lest you'll have me in as much trouble as him. The next morning, the 9th Louisiana Colored Regiment stood in proud formation. Their cannons and mule skinners assembled in a tight, straight, solid line for nearly a mile. Their uniforms, though dirty, buttoned and ordered properly, the brass buttons and broad sword handles of their commanders glistening in the sun, as Abe Lincoln himself turned the corner of Walker and Greel. 
the president walked with a small entourage of men and officers, he being the tallest of them, moving in a stately manner, like a tower among small cottages, his face pockmarked by grief and struggle, holding the hand of his son Todd. He nodded at the troops as he moved slowly down the road, occasionally tipping his hat and smiling. In ten days he would be dead, slain by an assassin's bullet, surrendered to history. But for the Ninth Louisiana Colored Infantry, it was the proudest, most electrifying moment of their lives, one they would, to a man, never forget. Thus, few among them noticed that among their 120 troops, 14 cannons, 11 wagons, and 45 mule skinners who stood in tight formation to greet the Republic's 16th president, there was one missing Union Army mule, one missing Union Army wagon, several barrels of Union Army supplies, and one unpaid Union Army soldier named Sergeant Abe Porter, who at the moment was making tracks north with a boy named Little Abe, rolling that Army mule at double-tried as fast as it could go. Man and boy bound for the north, and the long wait for the arrival of freedom that all it represented. Whatever it was, whenever it was, and however it was bound to come. That was the short story called Father Abe. It was taken from James McBride's book of short stories called Five Carat Soul. That's all for this edition of the African American Hour. If you would like to hear this show again or past editions of the African American Hour, you can get them wherever you find your podcast or in the archives at the Audio Reader website at reader.ku.edu. I'm Byron Buckner. Thank you for listening to the African American Hour. Thank you.